0: So, you know, she was, um, stopped me in my tracks because I was just saying, Yeah, you know, just telling her what my Monday has in store. And I said, Yeah, we have a podcast and, uh, I'll be talking to Vince from Buddhist Geeks. And she was like, Wait, 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 time out, time out. Vince from Buddhist Geeks, we need to slow it down. This is a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was helpful to me. I, I, I took a moment and, connected to yeah just the the excitement and also the i feel some humbleness you know some humility <laughs> i'm looking forward to to connecting you know, so.
1: yeah great to connect um my mom my mom used to say uh, a lot of you know i'm a legend in my own mind <laughs> and uh, she would yeah she would remind me of that often frequently
0: so, well, you're a so, legend in, in at least a couple of other people's minds, so you must be doing something right.
1: I'm spreading my legend, legendary ego around <laughs> time and space. Yeah, no, it's um, it's really cool to, it, it's like, it's so cool that the internet opened up when it did. I feel like in my journey as a kind of geek, geek forward millennial, elder millennial, Mm -hmm. but still a millennial. And um, yeah, I think we share that in common as a kind of generational uh, background.
0: For sure. Yeah. And you know, if we can, if we can take a step back and Ken Wilber will remind us of this, but Uh you know, if you go back just even a hundred years ago, you were probably going to have an experience of the world that was maybe a fraction of the possible worldscapes that we have access to just at the touch of our fingertips. Right. So just the fact that someone can tune into Buddhist geeks and, you know, listen to a Diane Hamilton or, a, you know, all these other podcasts that you've had is something to, to marvel at for sure.
2: You
1: know, becomes part of the digital archaeological record. Hopefully, at least. So, no doubt. My, my hope is our all of our stupidities is encased somewhere for, for eternity. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> for, sure. for others to learn from at least. I was going to say
0: for others to learn from for sure.
1: Yeah, exactly. Speaking of, you've, you've put down a nice little notch in the uh, in the archive with your Compassionate Conversations book. Uh you, Diane Kimberly. Yeah. Um, Kimberly Low. Diane Musho Hamilton, Kimberly uh Miosai. Mm-hmm. Miosai Lowe, yeah. And Gabriel
0: Men like Gale, Wilson. Yeah, you got it right, man. That middle hey. one sometimes throws people for a loop. It's Italian, so you got it just right. I, I got lucky, basically.
1: <laughs> I you know what I usually do before I speak to because I speak to you know like you do probably a, a lot of folks from different uh, backgrounds ethnic mm. national backgrounds you know it's like I see a lot of names I don't recognize For sure. before I speak to people and so I go to how to pronounce com and I just sort of put in a name I listen to the kind of I listen to it repeated a couple of times I practice it a few times and I say we'll see <laughs> Totally. And then I usually get thrown for a loop, even even with the practice. So. Totally, totally. Yeah, but that one I got lucky. So so happy to hear. Um, so you all have written an amazing and oh. awesome book, and I spoke to Diane just before the book came out, and so she reached out to me and she's like, "Hey, would love to talk about the book." I said, "Well, I don't want to talk to you again."
0: <laughs> you, all, you you all recorded that uh, everything same everything different podcast.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so, so fortunately, because you all have co-authored this together as a team, and I want to hear about like how this came about, this mm-hmm. project. Uh, and maybe as we, as we go into that, we can reach deeper into your past and background. And, uh, I mean, we've come in with a kind of just a conversation, which is appropriate, yeah. uh, to this episode. And, um, I'm hoping people get to know more about your background as we go, but I, I would say this, uh, our, our common point of contact is one of your co-authors, Diane Musho Hamilton. And that's, I think we go back to Diane and a connection to Diane and maybe even a YouTube video of Diane. Uh, what's the story? Maybe we can start there.
2: Yeah. <laughs> totally.
1: how did, how did, so Buddhist geeks, uh, you and Buddhist geeks and I, and Diane, we, we share this common.
0: Well, again, I think, you in know, space time in terms of being, what was the term that your mother used in your own mind? A legend? (laughs) Legend. Legend. I mean, you know, I think to also give you, (laughs) well, yeah, but to give you the props that you deserve, I think that it's a big service that you're providing, at least in my life, because I was probably around 25. I'm 33 right now. And, you know, I was just in a period of intense seeking and the desire for a teacher came up really clearly for me. Yeah. And I just started to probe and I had some reference points set up by my mom in particular around integral theory and meditation. It was Uh in my awareness. And so I used those two reference points and I said, I want someone that is intimate with integral theory and also, is a teacher of meditation. Yeah. It okay. Turns out that 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 overlap of that Venn diagram of those two circles is pretty small. Mm-hmm. And it was at that is. time. And so, oh man, I think it was within like literally the aspiration for a teacher came up, and I don't know, maybe thirty minutes later, I was on some Buddhist geeks in person conference where Diane was on stage mm-hmm. talking about evolutionary worldviews and. Uh how we just take for granted that our structures like biology evolves, the universe evolves, whatever, but the interiors also evolve. And when I touched into just that little hit, I had no idea exactly what I heard. I was just, I don't know what she just said, but it sounded just right for me and my inquiries. I just beelined to her after that. I just sent her an email and ended up in a retreat probably three months after that and in a way the rest is history then we wrote a book together just a little bit ago so
1: how was that what what's it like writing with two other people like i i've done some writing with my partner but we're super you know we're super close and even that's challenging i i I imagine working with two other people must be like a some sort of choreographed dance
0: yeah i think we had a couple of (laughs) those in my (laughs) mind for sure so I think the book is about 20 chapters and we basically divided the chapters equitably amongst ourselves. So it was like six, six, oh, and cool. seven roughly. Um,
1: did you get the seven or the six?
0: I honestly don't know, man. Probably.
1: I, I, you I say it's six. equitable, but.
0: Probably, <laughs> I know I mean, these times we have to be checking exactly how our things portioned out. But I mean, so we did that initial, um, Kind of scoping, you could say. I think what we had going for us, though, is that both Kim and myself were peers, and we're both Diane's students, right? And so there was a natural, and I would say, chosen uh, deference to Diane. Of course, you know. I keep telling her there's just no reason she should have written a book with me. I'm 33. I just arrived on the planet. I'm I'm still trying to get my bearings. (laughs) I I feel you on that. And so there was a natural deference by virtue of the fact that Kimberly and I have chosen Diane as our teacher. And so for me, more than anything, every day was a super humble experience filled with gratitude in the sense that I have the opportunity to put into language, which is just mm-hmm. an exercise in and of itself. that's positive mm-hmm. from what I've learned. And then I'd have the opportunity to pass it over to Diane and for her to basically say, this is great. Love how you framed this. I want you to take a second pass at how you're framing, you know, mm-hmm. human development.
1: So you're getting some mentoring while you're writing Real as time, well, you know, in the and collabor- so, collaboration I, and mentorship. That's absolutely. Great.
0: Absolutely. And so that's awesome. In the Zen tradition, which is the tradition that I practice in with Diane, the student-teacher relationship for me is central, and I think is central, probably arguably speaking, in the lineage. And there's tremendous amount of intimacy that's fostered between the teacher and the student in service Mm -hmm. of passing on the insights that this lineage Mm -hmm. from many thousands of years ago has been preserving. And the intimacy is really this recognition that we are fundamentally one mind. And there's a particular orientation that we can both click into. And she can help me point out the places where my mind might be stuck on something that's prohibiting a more uh, open, spacious awareness And that moment of sameness where she's in that same state of mind and I'm in that same state of mind is an incredibly intimate pursuit. So to further that intimacy in the form of writing a book together and really just getting a sense of how Diane's mind works was a super privilege. Along with your, your Dharma sister, Kimberly. Exactly. 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 And so to That's actually so cool. see how I was writing a paragraph and to see the small adjustments that Diane would make just to say, you know, you're getting a little cerebral, which is my training, you know, research, third person thinking. She said, you know, maybe just ground it with the story and it would ever so slightly change the paragraph in a way that it became more accessible and in a way it became more heartfelt. And hopefully that's what people get reading the book is just there is a personal connection that we're trying to forge through sharing our stories and also our failures, facilitating conversations that are generally avoided uh, because they can be destructive or because there have just been enough experiences that have affirmed to them it's not worth pursuing those conversations. You know,
1: I want to, um, start with one of these kind of core, I guess it'd be like principles, mm-hmm. uh, in compassionate conversation before each other, mm-hmm. because that, that stood out for me in the work that I did with Diane, the integral facilitator training most recently, mm-hmm. um, as being kind of like the glue that made the whole diff, like mm-hmm the whole thing of having these difficult conversations, but within a container where it was actually forward leading, um, you know, conversations around the me too movement and around gender and around race and around, you know, generation and around all these different kind of dimensions of uh, identity essentially and shared identity and conflictual identity and, and developmental identity, you know, ego, ethno, world, um, uh, planet, you know, um, All of that before each other for me stood out as being, it seemed to be like the central tenet, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of core point uh, of the whole thing, at least the way I understood it. I wanted to start there with you. What does that mean before each other in conversation and in
0: life? Before each other is a ground rule that we use in a lot of the conversation that we facilitate. And to even take a step back with respect to ground rules, ground rules in my mind, well, first of all, what they are simply is just the practices and mindsets that we commit to engage in this conversation. And for me, the ground rules are both the goal and the path in the sense that just the commitment to adhere to these ground rules in the context of difficult conversations is transformative in and of itself. Because typically when conversations get difficult, and I think Diane talked to you about this in your podcast with her, we can get hijacked. Our reptilian Mm -hmm. brain kicks on and we're left with particularly crude options of becoming defensive, fighting, or just straight up freezing. Right. Mm -hmm. And those probably are the grooves we fall into habitually out there in the world. But when you come into our spaces, that's the very thing we're trying to transform. We're trying to create different options. And so those ground rules are those options. So in addition to being for each other, we also talk about deeply listening, the mm-hmm. commitment to release your point of view for a second, so that you can receive someone else's point of view fully And Mm -hmm. therefore becoming the same as them, right? And the other one is real talk, which is express yourself, bring out your point of view, bring out your difference. And that difference is also catalytic to someone else's growth, right? It might be a point of view that doesn't fit within their worldview. And that's precisely what we want to be able to work with and integrate in service of our growth. They're the other ground rule is support and challenge. I can't challenge you to the degree that you don't feel supported by me.
1: Yeah. Right? That and reminds me of uh, Keegan's kind of uh, work, developmental work. Yeah,
0: 100%. Right. Like we have to cultivate a supportive learning environment yeah. where you feel safe. But if it's just safe, and it's just supportive. It actually becomes a sluggish environment where boredom yes. will follow suit very quickly. Yeah, we have to stimulate the the challenge. Yeah, (laughs) it's called the 2020 pandemic. Yeah, right. That that might be a little too challenging. We need some more support for the 2020 pandemic. (laughs) But Mm. support and challenge. The other one is praise. Praise in this context is the very specific praising of behaviors or of statements in the space. It's almost a way of the culture that is forming, the new culture, the new way of being together in difficult conversations. Praise is the way of affirming like that move, the way that you just listened, Vince. (laughs) Totally shifted my sense of connection to you. And I've never experienced that before. (laughs) Right.
1: Hey, welcome to my orbit, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's pretty awesome, <laughs>
0: right? Right. And so, praise is this affirmation of these new cultural groups, and by affirming it, we give it more life force. We give it more energy and reality in the space. Um, and the last one, of course, is confidentiality. Uh, typically, is helpful towards supporting people and stepping forward as their full, raw, unpolished selves in the sake of learning. And so confidentiality simply means we're not going to share any identifying information with anyone else out of this space, permitting you to step forward as you are in the sake of learning. So be for each other is, I think for me, it's the recognition that there are so many evolutionary grooves in us to not be for each other. So if, even if our egoic drives kick in on the more defensive side of the street, that's a moment where I'm just going to think about myself and take care of me, irrespective of the impact on you, right? Or we can enter a more ethnocentric mode where we're stuck in a logic of us and them, where our judgments of the other start to cascade off into, from a historical perspective, oppression, right? It leads to that. So there's so many evolutionary grooves that dictate not being for each other in this bigger sense. Mm -hmm. And for me, compassionate conversations, there's a question at the heart of these conversations, which is who can we be together? What, will it, what could it look like for us to be in a multicultural, harmonized society where our differences are included, not excluded? What does that look like? And that question is supported by that commitment to be for each other, no matter mm-hmm. what. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there are countless times in the process where everyone comes in with that intention and all of a sudden, I can't remember why I joined this workshop. I hate gay. I also don't like Diane. This is bullshit, right? The, the thought that we could bridge our differences racially was absurd. I don't know why I came into this workshop. And so that's precisely the moment. where cognitively speaking. We want to be able to invoke, hold it. What does it look like for me to be for these people in this room? in service of discovering who we can be together. So that's the premise of being for each other.
1: I like it. You covered a lot of ground and you touched on some of the topics um, that I've been certainly meditating on lately because they just are up, you know, it's like, it's what's happening. Mm -hmm. Um, certainly uh, race is something to be meditated on I think right now Mm -hmm. Um, and you've done a number of formal workshops I think working with Diane you mentioned um, something about fear and uh, fearlessness I'm not sure Uh, (laughs) what uh, what, what the name of the workshop title was but I called it freedom and fairness freedom and fairness okay I I got the F part right Uh, It sounded, it sounded pretty, it sounded really interesting. Like you went into some very, uh, I would say fraught (laughs) to keep the, to keep the Fs going, the fraught, fraught territory. And uh, it can be not for everyone, of course. Um, But certainly I think living in the United States, it's like, it's very hard to avoid the fraughtness of it Mm -hmm. um, because of the history um, of our country Mm -hmm. and what it's built on. It's built on this sort of core racialized, Oppression and this kind of very, very, uh, you know, to me clearly a a caste system, you know, Um, and I've been really enjoying that the recent book "Cast" um, by Wilkerson. I think her name is Lisa Wilkerson. Yeah, yeah. uh, it's great. She's 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 an incredible writer, um, which I think she she maybe is a a Pulitzer Prize winner. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) it goes without saying, but the but the arguments are really pretty clear, like looking at it from other cultural perspectives, like looking at, looking at, you know, this surprised me reading, reading cast, looking at um, Nazi Germany in the, in the early thirties They, you know, they had within the Nazi camp um, a more progressive and more extremist polls, of course. And the extremist poll of the Nazi, uh, you know, camp, uh, is really sort of saying like, the Americans are doing this whole racial thing right. Hmm. You know, and like they have the most extreme
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, racial caste system. Mm-hmm. And, and and the progressive Nazis are like, whoa, that is too much.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the progressive Nazis would, are against, uh, you know, uh, pre-1965, pre-civil mm-hmm. rights mm-hmm. Uh, legislation. Like they were like, progressive Nazis were like, hey, America has gone overboard here. That's heavy. so i just thought that histor- historically speaking you know it, it, it's clear but i think it's hard to see that because because we swim in our own we swim in our own soup now you have you know you you grew up in another country mm-hmm. right you're 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 in south american brazil i believe mm-hmm. so tell what is it like you know so now we're we're starting to get into the multiplex of identities here mm-hmm. you know Um, And this is, I think, where pluralism is born. People can start talking about this stuff uh, developmentally, like, oh, all these different perspectives. You've got your, you know, uh, your Brazilian, your, um, you know, your part, your part black, your part white, your part. I don't don't know how you would describe your identity, actually, and all the specifics. Um, You know, tell me about um, as we get into talking about this, you know, uh, multi-perspectival identity. Uh, working with pl- a pluralistic society, working with all this massive difference mm-hmm. and power dynamics and differentials and histories and karma, you know? Uh, like, how did you go into these workshops <laughs> and <laughs> like work with the stuff? Uh, and, and what did you find actually was helpful? And I, I know you and I want to actually do some stuff too, not mm-hmm. just talk about it. We want to yeah. demo some, yeah. of, some of what you found worked. Um, so totally. yeah, just hit me, man. Just hit me. That was a big lead up
0: to a a simple question. Yeah, man. I think you just threw like five different pitches, but...
1: Yeah, whatever you want to hit, just feel free to hit it.
0: Well, I think at the core of all of them is the question around identity. Yeah, identity. How we organize who I am in relationship to other people Mm. is fundamentally at the root of, I think, all of that. And in a way, and this is what's drawn me to spiritual practice was also the question of who am I? Oh yeah. Classic. Um, and so let's touch on the more relative side of the street in terms of just the multiplex of perspectives I'm made up of, and also how that interfaces with all the difference of identity groups out there in the world. But I also want to bring it into the spiritual context which to me feels more significant and also helpful to engaging the multiplex of the situation yeah yeah yeah. so from an identity on the relative side of the street i was born in brooklyn new york my dad is from st louis missouri black Mm -hmm. my mom is from rio de janeiro brazil white quote unquote um She's of European ancestry and I say, quote unquote, because yeah, yeah, yeah. The way that labels of black and white are related to in Brazil are different. Hence the quote unquote for her context. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn from zero to eight years old. Okay. Quite in a while. the house, my parents only spoke Portuguese to me. I learned English through Sesame Street. And and going outside, basically. Yeah. And that was a very deliberate effort on their part insofar as prepping me for the eventual move that they were planning for me and my younger brother to go to Brazil and live there so that I could have this bicultural experience
2: mm. and
0: to have the language installed, so to speak, for that moment. And so I moved to Brazil when I was about eight and a half and basically was there until I was 18, until I graduated high school. And in a way, in, in with respect to racial dynamics, it protected me or it kept me innocent to the racial dynamics in the United States.
2: Hmm.
0: Point being, when I came back to the States for undergraduate, I went to Stanford first, I don't know, like 36 hours on campus, new student orientation. Just everyone's like bright eyed, bushy tailed, trying to figure out what's going on. Freshman mm-hmm. dorm, we're all gathered in the lounge, about maybe 16 of us or so. And someone just in the midst of that group asks, Gabe, are you black? Like that question, are you black? Mm-hmm. For me was the beginning of an understanding of how race is related to in the United States, which is different than Brazil. And again, I'm not saying that Brazil doesn't have racism it has plenty of it. In fact, it received more slaves during the African slave trade, the the Atlantic slave trade than the United States did in magnitudes of order. Yeah, yeah. So there's deep, uh, racial, Reckonings to be had and to be worked with. But the preoccupation with the question of, are you black or are you white? Just Mm. isn't the same as it is in the States. Mm. Mm. And so for me, it, it kept me, uh, innocent or isolated from this context where race is very explicated. It's very above board. It's very much talked about all the time. In this day and age and that was new to me and so i think what what started to happen was i started to get really curious about my black identity particularly my dad's lineage Mm. being lived in the united states and so my dad's grandma or my dad's mom my grandma it's worth mentioning she was a civil rights leader She was the chair of the NAACP at a certain point in time. Mm -hmm. And whenever I interacted with her, when I was younger, again, in this cultural context of Brazil, she was still fired up. She was still fighting the battles, fighting the fight. And I just would look at her, and I say this with some kind of embarrassment right now, but I mentioned in the book as well, like she was stuck in the 1950s. Like, I literally just was like, yo, this fight is over. Like, look at, look at our family. Like your son married a white woman from Brazil and made this thing. Like game over. Well done. You know, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of arrogance. That's awesome. A lot of arrogance. That said, coming to the States, I started to get initiated, so to speak. Hmm into the intricacies of how race has played out and the, and the modern form of it, one of the modern forms. Yeah. Well, there's so many actually, but let's just take redlining, for example, where we're literally carving up land space that disproportionately favors people that are not people of color, white people. In a particular way, that's totally inappropriate. <laughs> mm. Um, mm. There's a prison industrial complex, there's racial profiling there's there's all sorts of systemic causes. The thing that mm. really shifted me, and this is the worldview bit, you could say that my bicultural biracial identity was inherently had a world centric sensibility where I said, I made up of all these differences. I feel at home with myself. I feel at home with the differences outside of me. More than anything, I have just the excitement of introducing myself to different cultures and learning about them. Like a very world centric sensibility. There was no us. And them. it was just other people that were different. And it gives me an opportunity to learn more about my own uniqueness and their own uniqueness period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I kind of didn't relate to the realities that are still present of us and them that exist, mm, mm. So I was blind to that. Mm. When my grandmother passed away, there was a way that she's very much alive in me and my psyche, even after her passing in fact, more so after her passing. And one of the things that happened was, under the Freedom of Information Act, I actually received a bunch of documents that the government had on my grandma because they were surveilling her. <laughs> mm. And so I was like, holy shit, like the government was surveilling my grandma for the civil rights activity that she was doing. Right. And that's when it clicked. That's when I, was, I appreciated that there were heavy-duty powers or human beings that had big levers to pull. To track my grandmother and curb her activity, for example, that's when it clicked of, wow, uh, institutional and structural racism is a thing. Mm. Um, Mm. and so for me, that's when I started to more deliberately entertain this question of, okay, how do we, I feel at home with myself. Amidst my differences, but the outside does not like the, the outside, outside world doesn't reflect that. In, in all right. And so it just became a question like, why, the, like, why the hell doesn't it? I think it's possible. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and so in a way, in a very naive and innocent way, that's still yeah.
1: the idealist.
0: Yeah. That just felt sense in my body yeah. drives me still with respect to the work that I'm doing, which is, yeah. I think it's possible now what I've learned through doing the freedom and fairness work and compassionate conversations is that you need to choose into this work. I can't, I'm not going to provide a moral argument for you to do it or not. I've tried that and I fail every time, but there are many people that want to explore the possibilities of what it could look like to come together. Those are my people. And I've reached a point now where I'm very inclusive and I'm also very exclusive in the sense that the only, the the price of admission into the spaces and the group work that we do is this commitment to be for each other. Mm. If you're not interested in that, and if you're actually more identified, let's say as a black person with uh, the black cause in isolation in the sense of, I just want to actually support black people. I want to do black led retreats for black people. They need the mental health and mental care. They need the spiritual teachers that are black that they resonate with. I'm all for it. Just the space that I'm creating is different. It's multicultural. It's mixed. It's ambiguous. We're looking like you at, like me. Yeah. And we're looking to create identities that are more outlandish than black and white. We're Mm. looking to create identities that are, Mm. um, from a certain point of view, um, completely made of something outside of these modern identities that we've created called black white native american what have you i think those are super important and i'm not throwing them out in the bathwater. right i'm just saying i want to engage in the exploration of more radical identities that can cohere us cooperatively Mm -hmm. so that we can forge worlds together
1: yeah and 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 that that to me seems like some of the core wisdom of integral, like if I were to call it that, where it's like to, to be able to do anything that's going to involve transformation, which is inherently painful and, you know, dissolving mm-hmm. uh, and you know, deconstructing and reconstructing, you know, as it were, mm-hmm. it's, there's going to require some kind of coherence and some kind of togetherness, you know, connectivity that goes beyond a lot of different, you know, in, in particular identity 100%. identities. 100%. Yeah. And, and I, I see that's where the spirit, you know, the spiritual identity can help people kind of converge, you know, uh, it's like, Oh yeah. Like there's some part of me, which is beyond name and form. 100%. And it's like, cool. That's, that must be true of everyone <laughs> because this isn't personal, you know, uh, this, this particular recognition of beyond name and form. It's, transpersonal it's totally. you know it's it's big mind
0: totally. yeah. yeah and so i think from an evolutionary frame this is i think ken wilber quoting maybe alfred whitehead but mm. the three dimensions there are these three basic forces in the universe there's the preservative function there's the creative function and there's the destructive function mm. so to give a quick shout out to the destructive function I think there's definitely some some things that need to be deeply interrogated, and just destroyed, right? I think I don't know what those are, but I think there's some intelligence to that principle. For example, uh, slavery should have been destroyed. Well done, we did that. However, insidiously speaking, the spirit of that became yeah. over time Jim Crow, and then we got the prison industrial complex. We have redlining those things need to be destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so just to give a shout out to like those efforts, that's just not my world. My world is more dealing with human development, transforming, creating experiences that transform me inevitably, but hopefully transform the people in the room as well in service of that question again, of of who do we, who can we become together? And so on the preservative and the creative function, I feel like spirituality, which for me, and again, let's bring that in. I had a and still have, but I developed this heart condition in college. And it just shook me completely. Um, you could see my grades just tank. My GPA went from decent to just non-existent, because I was just engrossed in fear. Uh, deep anxiety around what the hell is happening with my heart. The doctors couldn't figure it out. We're doing several tests. Right. And it took a couple of months, but in that crucible, of just, just uncertainty of damn is like tomorrow, the last days today, the last day, like wh- how do I um, relate to myself given that I can't quite vision out that far anymore? started to bring up the questions of, I'm going to die. That became super obvious. And then also it became obvious. I remember looking out at the, we had this like quad area and all the students are on their bikes going to class. And there was just this recognition of, holy shit, like every person here is going to die. Like everyone's going to die. In fact, like everything's going to like just come and pass, right? And so that became impressed upon me in a very visceral way. And it brought up the question of what is death? And then what the hell is life in the face of death? Like, what is life? And so eventually, just that question of like, what is this? Like, what? This is a very strange experience. Like, why the fuck is this happening? <laughs> so for me, that blew out, or at least that was a ground during which who Gabe was was literally deconstructing itself. Gabe was this pre-med student, loved basketball, was going to be Mm -hmm. a doctor. All Mm -hmm. that stuff started to be deconstructed because I couldn't vision that far out because I didn't have the security of life beyond the next day is what it felt like. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so just the question of like, wow, like what is death and what is life? The thing that those two have in common is the question, like, what is it? Like, I don't know what death is. I don't know what life is. So there's a, similarity there. And in Zen, Zen master Dogen says, not knowing is the most intimate relationship to have to this moment. And so for me, that's where I personally ground myself as much as I can when I'm doing this work. Like I understand Vince is both from the United States and has Palestinian heritage. Gabe is from the United States has black heritage, Brazilian heritage and European heritage for sure. And underneath that is this unqualifiable, unpinnable reality that we're much deeper than all those things.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: And so for me, that's also where the creative principle is, is like, yo, yo, we are way more mysterious than all those monikers are
2: mm, mm
1: it's a diff it is a different scale when you look at it from like a a kind of Buddha buddhist cosmic mm-hmm. level you know uh like births and deaths and universes coming coming and going <laughs> totally. Totally. yeah and I think there's
0: uh, a lot of beauty to the creative frictions between our different identities, and I think yeah. if you want to work with them, they will literally produce more dynamic identities that can include those differences growth yes yes, yes.
1: yeah development yeah that's pretty uh, pretty pretty well said you know the bodhisattva vow also uh, arises with what you're saying you know about where the creative spark comes from it feels like that's also a type of um, deeper aspiration that kind of taps into again, the sort of cosmic Mm -hmm. level perspective of, um, -hmm. seeing what I'm the, the journey that I'm on as being much bigger than what I know of it. Mm -hmm. And it's that kind of level of things. Totally. Um, so I find great, uh, more as I get, I guess as I get older, uh, Less rebellious in some ways, I'm finding great solace in in that aspect of Buddhist practice. That it's very, it is beyond what I understand. That the not knowing is most intimate. Yeah. He said.
0: Totally. And you know, the bodhisattva vow I think is how I approach a lot of the challenges that we face today. So mm-hmm. I think compassionate conversations. The way that I frame it to people that step into engaging these conversations with us is that we're not going to end racism. In other words, we're not going to get rid of ethnocentrism. Right, right, right. This thing isn't going to go away. So there's mm-hmm. nothing in that sense to fix. That's awesome. Right. And so when there's nothing necessarily in that sense to fix with respect to ethnocentrism, what, what, what is left in my mind as a possibility is our own transformation. This is a, a whetstone, ethnocentrism, racism. it's a whetstone that we can use to hone ourselves to be able to more adeptly work with these forces. And so that's the Bodhisattva frame for me. It's like this commitment to be in it, even though that I'm probably going to be here forever doing it. Right, I'm not going to solve all suffering. <laughs> it's just this commitment to stay with it and work with it compassionately.
1: Um, we can't even solve all the suffering we know about yet, let alone all all the vast unknown. <laughs> that's right. That's
0: right. Totally. So for me, it's a particular uh, orientation that invites. The frame is transformation. It's our transformation. We're not going to get rid of racism. We're not going to get rid of ethnocentrism, but we can transform our relationship to I like that. Each other. I like the framing uh,
1: that instead of transcend and, and exclude that sort of, you've got the inclusion part there, which is really key, exactly. you know, to like not demonizing some parts of people that aren't, as you say, aren't going to, aren't going to vanish
0: for sure. And I think it's, they're not going to vanish from you. Right. They're just straight up not going to vanish from you. Just the other day I was down at the property with Diane <laughs> in Southern Utah and this random person came onto the property. And my first impulse was who the fuck is this person? It was like immediately an aggression towards this unknown other. Mm. Yeah. It's very much inside all of us right? yeah, yeah. for us to just, whoop, well, there it is. Okay, And there's actually some adeptness to working with it. It's really important for us to become intimate with. Um, I think to, to move us in the direction of maybe doing some, some exercises. Yeah, let's do it. The, the frame of... So, so ethnocentrism is inside of all of us. There are also other parts, other worldviews that are inside of us. That we can deliberately connect to to have a different relationship to what's happening. So, I think one thing that I want to say, just with respect to the compassionate conversations point, and to vivify this exercise typically, when people have conversations, we have conversations, particularly that are like difficult. We come in wanting to like argue our point of view, and in a way, we double down. We double down on our point of view. We try to preserve it, protect it against whatever the counter point of view is. Right. So maybe take the vaccine, for example, or COVID. It's like we got to stay open. The economy is going to suffer too much. Other point of view. We got we to gotta bring the hammer down and then we'll figure out the dance, but we have to bring the hammer down really hard and close everything up except for the, the essential activities and the essential workers, right? Mm-hmm. Those are two poles.
1: Um, except for the prime drivers. Right. Right. And so. <laughs> Seriously.
0: Yeah. And, and within those two poles, there's a whole gradation. There's like a whole, like, of course, Economically speaking, this is going to like have cascading effects if we just hammer it down. But also, we're going to lose a lot of life if we stay open. And so what are the different points of views that we could explore if we're not tethered to those one of those two positions? Mm-hmm. It's a much more flexible space, but also it requires you to relinquish your point of view a little bit for it to transform, to become more nuanced. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: And for uh, new camps to emerge for sure. And so new, con- new subtle, subtle, subtler
0: conflicts. <laughs> conflicts? But for, for me, what I've been learning from Diane is like conflict is super good news. It's good. Yeah. Conflict basically points to the fact that one point of view is being made out to be the whole truth.
2: Mm, interesting.
0: Right. Yeah. And so from a worldview perspective, all of us are in a worldview, our worldview Influences how we relate to things, just as like the example with my grandmother. I lived in Brazil, thought racism was done, thought we didn't need racial justice anymore. I thought my grandma was in the 1950s. That's my worth, yet. I'm leaving out a whole bunch of other things, <laughs> as it turns out, that would have shifted that point of view uh, to be more encompassing and nuanced. And also um, affirming what my grandmother was still fighting for. Mm. right mm. and so i had a conflict with her she was my grandma she was really sweet with me i think she kind of wanted to not burden me with the reality so she didn't really push it but the fact of the matter is is that there was some tension and that tension pointed to the fact that yo gabe you're missing a whole reality of things that would actually explain why your grandmother is still fighting mm. Right. Yeah, yeah. So conflict again is an indication that a point of view is being related to as the whole truth. When it's just a partial point of view that has some truth in it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so and we're getting we're getting down to the, the the core truth
1: here of the this is the integral of perspectivism here. A
0: hundred percent true, right. true so but
1: partial at every everything's at every point. True but partial.
0: Right. Yeah. It's really hard for anyone to be a hundred percent wrong. Like you got. Yeah. All yes. right. <laughs> Correct. It goes both ways. And so for me, compassion arises along with suffering, just as an instinctual yeah. response, right? Yeah. And suffering, I read this quote the other day. Suffering is basically feedback that you are not perceiving the interconnected whole. Mm, I like that. Suffering is Very, feedback that yeah. you're not perceiving the interconnected whole. And so in the context of our conversations, it means that if I adhere to my point of view stringently yeah, and you hold to your point of view stringently, let's say I'm holding black lives matter. You're holding all lives matter. And we're not letting go of that. We're just not right. letting go of that. It's going to create a lot of suffering because we're, we're imposing our view And we're making that permanent in the whole truth when in fact the situation is way more complex. Of course, all lives matter. Of course, black lives matter. And how can we actually go into the nuances of what we're trying to say? Um, And so for me, that's the moment where suffering is created where we like literally do not relinquish our positions Mm -hmm. in service of actually evolving those positions. So I feel like compassion to me In these conversational contexts, is this hold it. There's suffering being produced right now because we're adhering to our positions as as if they're fixed in the whole truth. Let's actually inquire. Let's ask questions that will reveal other aspects that your position is neglecting. Right. Yeah. And and there's a whole way of going about this, but for me, that's what compassion in these conversations is doing, right? And some people might think compassion is soft, and this is the last thing I'll say and we can practice. Compassion isn't soft. Compassion responds to suffering. Sometimes the response to suffering is on the more supportive side of the street. It involves listening. Let me listen to this perspective that typically doesn't get any airtime in the larger culture, right? Let me do that. Let me drop my point of view. Let me really receive the truth of this person that might have a marginalized identity. In the next moment, there might be a challenge, compassion. The response might be a very challenging response. We have to cut that out. That's absolutely unacceptable. We can't shut down voices. We have to stand up for tolerance, but we have to do it in a way that is isn't intolerant of those that are not tolerant, right? We have to actually walk our talk. Let's do this, stop doing that. So it can be supportive and challenging. Um, But I just wanna say compassion isn't inherently, it's attuned to our interconnectedness. It's it's attuned to the nuance, frankly. So I think when we're looking at these worldviews, we wanna pay attention to like what is left outside of the worldview. And what's included in the worldview. And as we explore, we're going to notice that the things that are left outside of the worldview are typically the things that mature you out of the worldview into another one. So just to pause there, I'm curious if you have any reflections and how you want to dive into the practice.
1: No, I'm excited to do it. Um, This is a great framing and uh, I love what you shared about compassion and suffering. Mm-hmm. And I particularly stood out as the the observation you made about compassion being attuned to nuance. You know, to be able to uh, pick up on those subtle differences and 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 recognize them. Um, yeah, yeah, makes uh-huh. makes uh, it's a great connection. Cool. Yeah, thank you for
0: that. So, um, in terms of the practice, I think it'd be fun for us to both explore this evolving world views framework, and this is based on a lot of adult developmental theory which basically stays says that our interiors the way that we interpret the world the way that we interpret ourselves and others is changing it evolves over time and you can see this really clearly with little children um, there's this famous example where you basically take a cup or a glass and you paint one half of the glass green you paint the other half of the glass yellow and you twirl it around in front of the little child, let's say three or four years old. And then you face the green side to them, which means you're looking at the yellow side. And you ask them, so what color are you looking at? And they say, I'm, I'm looking at the green color. Well, what color am I looking at? They should say yellow, but they don't. They say green. Because
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. they can't take the point of view. Yeah. Makes sense. That, that I'm in. Right. And so that's you could say is um something that developmentally speaking is a constraint. And then over time they grow out of it to the point where they can finally take Gabe's point of view.
1: I got a five and a half year old over here. I can tell you this this is not theoretical for me. <laughs> <laughs> there, you go. there you
0: go. So those those transformations are very self-evident, particularly in a five year old.
1: It's really true. It's really yeah. true. I don't, I don't know how people contort themselves out of seeing development, to be honest with you. It's, yeah. it's quite, it's quite a, it's quite a contortion against reality to, For sure. to, to not see this coming online of perspective taking, like being able to take more and other perspectives.
0: It's That's right. fundamental. It's fundamental. And so it occurs across the lifespan, the capacity to take multiple points of view, uh, is just an ongoing process so basically the evolving world views framework is an exercise in taking points of view cool I'm, i'm excited and there are four that we'll explore and again i think it's important to emphasize this is a map it's not the territory uh it's a way of you practicing and playing with your life and seeing how it changes maybe the way you even communicate depending on which point of view you click into in these difficult conversations. So, there are th- four stages that we can explore. One is the egocentric stage. My favorite. That you favorite. <laughs> it's the stuff that makes us legendary in our own minds. <laughs> For sure. Um, then we have the ethnocentric stage, which is the us and them, black and white, pun intended, mm. identity structure, worldview. The third one is the world-centric stage of development that can be for this moment, the identity that looks out at humanity and sees its diversity reflected back at itself. You are enlivened by the diversity of who we are, but it's all within the human family, that one identity. And then finally is the cosmic-centric identity, which we can, we won't even describe it right now. We'll just, we'll explore it when we get there. Okay. Okay. Cool. So it would be fun, Vincent. I'll do this with you, but maybe we can just say um, fully inhabit each perspective in a voice dialogue way, which I know that you're familiar with, and just explore these different stages together. And I'll give us the prompts, and we can just basically flesh out what we notice about ourselves and the world outside from these different points of view. Cool. So the egocentric self, for the people listening, is you are fully identified with your wants, needs, and desires. And because of that, you're, you really are oriented to the present moment. You're very short-term thinking, in a way, because you're always adhering to the next thing that you want, the next thing that you need or desire. Long-term thinking doesn't really apply here. Um, Other people are instrumental to you so far as fulfilling those wants, needs, and desires. Other than that, they don't really interest you from a purely egocentric point of view. So Vince, let's jump in and just inquire from an egocentric point of view. What do you notice?
1: I notice the interiors of my body and warmth.
0: Awesome. So you're actually tied into the body, what you need there. I'm curious, like, do you, do you need to pee right now, Vince? I don't. Do you? I don't. But that would be... You just pulled me out of the egocentric
1: mind, my, my, my friend. Oh, did I? Yeah, because I don't care. <laughs> well, you would care if you had to pee. I would care about me,
0: but not you. For sure. Yeah, you don't care about what I have to go to bed. For sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. For sure. fair enough no i'm good thank you no 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 no. that's a good point so one thing i noticed about the egocentric self speaking as the egocentric self is like i want to do a good job right right now i want to do a good job on this podcast i want vince to like me what do you notice the egocentric self
1: oh i notice wanting to uh respond in kind and uh fluff up your ego
0: all right word why do you want to fluff up my ego from an egocentric point of view?
1: Um, because
0: we, cause we, we
1: can, uh, you know, I pat my, I pat your back, you pat mine. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. If I do a good job, theoretically, your listeners will like what you're providing in terms of content and keep listening to you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We create this undeniable uh, bond of rightness. We're mm-hmm. doing this right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. I'll to like like those ego, ego
0: payoffs. <laughs> totally. As an egocentric self, what else do you want or desire?
1: I want to live forever and never be in pain. Okay. Uh, I'd like whatever I imagine and want and desire, like look, look for it to happen instantaneously. Mm-hmm. On for sure. For sure. Yeah. I'd like to be God, essentially.
0: Yeah, totally. (laughs) Totally. There's some disappointments coming down the road, my friend.
1: (laughs) Oh, no. I'm not God.
0: (laughs) Totally. So as the egocentric self, one thing I desire is attention. Mm. I, I want people's attention. I can do things when people have their attention on me. I can usually get what I want when people have their attention on me. So I'm pretty oriented around that. Yeah. So one of the downsides, we can ask ourselves this question, what is left out from an egocentric point of view? Like what's left out? Mm-hmm. Other people are left out. Others. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Other people are left out. And that inevitably is what drives development into the next stage with just ethnocentrism. Right. And one of the, you know, I was a first grade teacher for a little bit. This was so obvious to me where I would basically say, you know, Tyler, you can't just straight up take David's Cheetos. You have to ask. And if he says yes, then you can have some, but you just threw your hand in there and grabbed a whole fistful and ran away. That's absolutely unacceptable complete chaos right and just that moment me and david's in tyler's experience is the the boundary it's the uh the other imposing themselves onto tyler and saying like oh shit like if i just do that then i lose relationship gabe just put me in time out okay like i have to tune to others like we're, we're helping each other grow into this stage all the time. So ethnocentrism, there is a very clear in-group of what you're a part of. And there's everyone that's not part of your out-group or your in-group, right? So there's the other, the out-group. Uh, typically, there's a lot of sense of belonging with the in-group. Yeah. There's a lot of at least reservation towards the out-group, if not straight-up demonization of the out group, which oftentimes helps us solidify our bond as the in group. Like, can you believe white people, right? Like that is a solidification of, and it can go the other way. Like, can you believe black people goes the other way, uh, there's a sense of belonging. There's also a sense of purpose. There's the sense of belonging to, and the purpose of extending this in group through ritual, through ceremony, all of these things are ways that we codify our relationships and ourselves and sustain that, right? We're a very large body ethnocentrically. Like I just got this hoodie, says 1619, which is when the first slaves arrived in this country. And it says remember our ancestors, right? The ethnocentric identity in a way goes way back in time. And we're remembered of that connection through rituals and ceremonies that we keep doing moving forward to the present. So the yeah. ethnocentric identity is quite a big space. It's a much bigger space than the egocentric worldview. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's famously disrupted during in modernity as well for a lot of people, like where those ancestral practices are kind of often disrupted or discovered.
0: Yeah. The, the more scientifically minded orientation will put a lot of those things under the microscope and literally find nothing. And therefore cut that off.
1: Right. Um, Nothing nothing under the
2: microscope.
0: Yeah. And so Vince, maybe it'd be nice for us to, there's so many ethnocentric identities that we can plug into. Yeah. But maybe we can plug into the ethnocentric identity of our nationality of being U S citizens. Okay, great. And so from that point of view, I'd love to hear from you as a ethnocentric U S citizen, What are you proud of, of our of our group?
1: Uh, I'm proud of the tremendous loudspeaker that we've constructed.
2: (laughs) Seymour, what do you mean?
1: Uh, I just mean in terms of media. My gosh, America has, in some ways, created most of the modern and postmodern media Mm -hmm. industry, Mm -hmm. and. And, you know, so I'm sort of on the one hand proud of, of that and the, the, the shame on the other side of it. So I'll just sure. <laughs> acknowledge we're, that. We're <laughs> <more>. <laughs> yeah. I know.
0: So, so the world centric, we're not there yet. Okay. Yeah. So you're actually proud of the megaphone, the loudspeak yeah. that we've created, that actually yeah. has created all these different world spaces that we can engage with. And many of the things that
1: have been promoted through it, I'm proud of, uh, World certain certain kinds of world centrism, certain kinds mm-hmm. of democracy, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, cool. Tolerance, multicultural
0: tolerance, as an ideal. You know, mm-hmm. like that. Cool. As a U.S. citizen, I've I've been reading about Abraham Lincoln, and I'm I'm blown away by the Constitution. Of course, he didn't write it, but he's he's this like embodiment of this leader that I just totally. Respect and the intimacy that he had with these founding documents. These founding documents were insane. The fact that they emerged in history and that we are of that lineage of this democratic republic and the foundation of that. I'm I'm super proud mm. of coming from that lineage. Mm. Mm. Um, what else are you proud of as a U.S. citizen?
1: Hmm. Uh, as a u.s citizen i'm i'm proud of how just how much difference there is contained within within our boundaries Mm -hmm. Um, and just like that we're still like able to function (laughs) at all given given the amount just the sheer amount of difference and diversity um, compared compared to a lot of places in the world Um, so pr- proud of that. I, you know, I don't know
0: how, but here, 100%. we still stand hundred percent plus one on that. The way that we distinguish ourselves is because we can welcome so much difference. Mm. And there's an ethos of, there's a commitment or there's a spirit of trying to create a multiracial democracy and a republic. Yeah. I'm proud of that. I'm also proud of the the lineage of freedom fighters, civil rights, women's mm-hmm. suffrage movement, there is this way that the striving for that kind of freedom and fairness in this country, I feel is, is special. It feels it feels again tied to these founding documents. There's a certain spirit mm. that we have around the pursuit of freedom and fairness that I really feel proud of as a U.S. citizen. Mm, mm,
1: mm. Any Remind last?
2: Us. Yeah, please.
1: Well, just what you. I just wanted to say what you shared reminds me a lot of what Greg, uh, Greg Thomas uh, has been sharing in some of his work and. Mm-hmm. Uh, really appreciate um, that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's, you can look at it as the the founding documents provided a template for us to, uh, to transcend certain level, certain degrees of uh, internalized racism. Right. And of course, with much more work
0: always to be done. To be done. For sure. Yeah. So let's, let's go over. And again, this is typically when you're in an in-group, when you're part of an us, mm-hmm. there's a desire to really affirm the positive attributes of who we are. There's a lot of groupthink that settles in. And, and typically what we're pushing out are the things that would disrupt the equilibrium of our relationships, of our in-group. So things that we actually are ashamed of are examples of, those things that we push out and keep out of the culture, mm. those things are in shadow or they're out of view, let's say. And inevitably those are the things that will drive us out of our groupthink and out of our ethnocentric worldview and into another more expansive worldview. And so... Let's just pick up the parts of our ethnocentric identity as American US Americans that we're ashamed of. Let's see what what we <laughs> Yeah that that one's fairly easy.
1: It's it was already it was already coming out when I was <laughs> yeah. touching into the proud parts. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So what are you ashamed of as a US citizen?
1: Uh you know, it connected to the to the loudspeaker it's it's sort of uh what i'm ashamed of is just how dominant are it's not the dominance it's the arrogance behind the dominance Mm -hmm. thinking that somehow we do have the superior Mm -hmm. point of view on life and like how to live and Mm -hmm. like we think we've got it completely worked out it's like mm, were you here from 2016 to 2020 yeah <laughs> because uh you know democracy to me is still <laughs> wobbly, mm-hmm. um and so uh you know I think there's there's that shame of like just kind of the arrogance of dominating yeah. you know the discourse
0: totally totally, one of the things that I'm ashamed of is let's go international for a moment we have. Destabilized governments, we have dropped bombs on different countries, and we're still doing it. Probably today, we did some. Uh, that mm-hmm. level of violence and imperialism motivated, again, I think, through our own just self interest. Uh, I'm super ashamed of, particularly just my reference points with respect to this is like my other ethnocentric attending, but like Brazil, Latin America in general as someone from the U S we've totally tampered with Latin America really at their expense in service of our interests in many ways. Mm, mm, I'm ashamed of that.
2: Yeah. Mm. Let's see
1: more. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. I'm ashamed at how bipolar our culture is Mm -hmm. and how we're so fixated on this sort of, this dualistic frame, you know, this like fundamental container of dualism Mm -hmm. in how we organize our body politic. Mm -hmm. Like it's kind of like, okay, we have to be on this side or that side. Jeez. Like, Give me the European, you know, give me some, give me some different, mm-hmm. a few more dimensions, you know, something. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. ashamed. yeah. I'm ashamed, ashamed of how bipolar and uh, dualistic the Americans, you know, kind of is. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, I'm ashamed of the fact that we haven't really reconciled our, our history. We haven't really come to terms with slavery in the same way that, for example, Germany has. Right, they, they've done at least more than we have with respect to reckoning with the Holocaust, mm. establishing memorials, um, creating curriculum and education and experiences that educate Germans of what happened and what they did and that that legacy. Um, I'm ashamed that we haven't really haven't done that in that mm. way in this country in our country. Mm. Is there one more? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Yeah. I think for me, you know, you just, almost like just touching on There's a core spirit of sort of arrogant, aggressive, uh, imperialistic mm-hmm. kind of like force that is out in the world and internal, internal. you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's the core shame that I feel around this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this identity.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, totally and just to kind of put the fine point on we can transition to the next one ethnocentrism is arguably the most lethal force on this planet particularly yeah. when you marry with technology yeah. we have nukes so we have just these ethnocentric rivalrous dynamics that have technological capacity to just wipe out everything um but the force, the, the, the ethnocentrism is one of, is the most, if not one of the most um, lethal forces on the planet right now that we have to learn how to reckon with and work with. Once we grow out of ethnocentrism, and there are, there are several drivers, right, integrating and noticing the parts of our ethnocentric group that are inconsistent with what we're telling ourselves about, like we're the land and right. free but Home we the have pool. Jim Crow, like, right. Yeah. Those contradictions right. start to shake the foundations of that identity and can uh, lead you to seek other perspectives, other vantage points that kick you into a more of a world centric space. Another super easy way to do it is just to travel, like literally leave the country and go immerse yourself in a different culture. That'll do it. Um, mm-hmm. So world centrism is different from ethnocentrism in a very important way, which the world-centric point of view isn't afraid of difference. The ethnocentric is, right? The other, quote-unquote, is that difference that feels threatening. It's those rivalrous dynamics. World-centrism has a much different sensibility towards difference. It actually embraces difference. It sees it as part of this larger body called humanity, right? Right? And there's a curiosity for that. So it also brings into view the problems that all of humanity faces because you're identified with the whole body. Inevitably, you become in contact with the problems that humanity is facing also. So there are certain uh, larger scale problems that come into view at a world centric stage. So maybe we can do two responses per prompt. So. From a world-centric point of view, Vince, from a world-centric self, what excites you the most when you look out into the world and you check out and you feel this identification with humanity? What excites you the most from a world-centric point of view?
2: Hmm.
1: I'm, I'm excited about some of the some of the potential. Uh, potentials that exist with some new emerging technologies, like these, these little momentary windows where there's some potential revolutionary kind of stuff that could shift the needle on society and culture things like in the, you know, like in the, um, in the, in the cryptography space, for Mm -hmm. instance, there's like potential there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've seen enough of those waves now to know, like, Things can break in different directions, but they also can get co-opted. So mm-hmm. I'm 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 sort of t- uh, cautiously optimistic yeah. about those things, but I'm mm-hmm. not um, I'm not naive to think mm-hmm. that and it's, it's so- becomes some, some, some utopia.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna say it sounds like behind those technological innovations, it you're excited about them because it actually holds some promise around somehow unifying us further yeah. or enhancing our collaboration with each other.
1: Yeah, creating more uh, more just commons mm-hmm. and more wealth in, in our common, awesome. common commonly awesome. held humanity, awesome planet.
0: Yeah, well, one thing that I'm um, I'm inspired by and enlivened by from a world-centric point of view is mm-hmm. I don't know, when you look at our like life history, we're very resilient. We're very resilient and innovative and creative. And that inspires and gives me hope Mm, mm, like the history of humanity yeah like we've gone through plagues we've gone through climate changes we've gone through Mm -hmm. all of it and we're still here and so there's a confidence in our spirit that I find inspiring from a world-centric point of view what are you overwhelmed by
2: (sighs) Ah. The
1: breakdown of underst- of mutual understanding in, on the, in the global commons. Mm-hmm. Things are so complex,
0: it's hard to just make sense of it.
1: Yeah, and people are tuned into different media ecosystems that have pol- polar opposite truth claims and, you know. Um, totally. No differentiation, you know, being made often
0: between yeah. different Sources, totally. Um, Climate change. Oh, God. (laughs) That's a problem. Uh, Definitely disrupts me. And again, it's it's important to notice from an ethnocentric point of view, the problem is typically another group. Um, From a world-centric point of view, the problems take on a bigger scale, right? Climate change affects the whole planet, sense-making and the ability to um, understand what is going on, as you point out, is breaking down across the planet. Um, these problems are of a scale of magnitude much bigger than just the ethnocentric concerns. Yeah. Um, a good example is like the pursuit of racial justice is in particular concerned with climate justice, even though climate justice disproportionately impacts people of color. Mm. So from an ethnocentric point of view, racial justice is like, I literally don't have time to fight that climate change battle in addition to, but they don't see the linkage and how they're related. Right. Mm. It literally obfuscates mm. other interconnections. Mm. Mm. Um, so maybe a good way to close out the call, my friend is, is to touch into the cosmic centric.
1: Hey, that's a good way to end any, yeah. any call.
0: so um that has been helpful thank you totally so if you want to just adjust in your seat and if you want to like relax your eyes 45 degree angle just close them so i'll just give you a series of prompts and also for the listeners just to contemplate and as you listen to my voice just settle into your
2: breath Feel your feet on the ground or your sits bones on the cushion of the chair that you're sitting on.
0: So as the cosmic-centric self, we usually dip into this point of view because the sheer magnitude of the problems we face overwhelms the world-centric self eventually. And it's particularly that overwhelm that drives
2: us to seek a stabler
0: space in our experience. Until the cosmic centric self, I'm not going to describe it. I'll just ask you questions for you to feel into it.
2: As the cosmic centric self, how big are you? As a cosmic centric self, how big are you? As a cosmic centric self, when did you begin? Or put another way, as a cosmic centric self, when were you born? As the cosmic centric self, when are you? Where are you? When are you happening?
0: And contemplate this from this point of view. As the cosmic centric self, how do you relate or feel towards those prior worldviews?
2: How do you feel towards the egocentric self? The ethnocentric self or the world centric self? As the cosmocentric self, how do you
0: relate to the desires of the ego? the ethnocentric rivalries of the ethnocentric self, the problems of the world-centric self. How do you relate to all that? So as the cosmic-centric self, how big are you? You are vast, you are boundless. As the cosmic-centric self, where
2: are you? You're here. You're everywhere, nowhere. Those are all possible responses.
0: As the cosmocentric self, the egocentric, the ethnocentric, the world-centric are all occurring inside of you. You You're all of that. So my invitation for you to consider is just what, what's the feeling, what's the disposition towards those different parts of yourself and the different parts in other people from a cosmic lens. So Vince, thank you. I think the, the main, yeah, point, thank you. The main point that is helpful to make, you know, this is, again, this was just the map. It's not a territory, but what I want and I hope your listeners receive is that they have a more nuanced sense of the different points of view that they have access to. No one worldview is better than the other. Um, Any given situation might call for one of those worldviews to be active. If you're taking a stand for yourself, For your personal boundaries, you definitely want to be locked into an egocentric point of view, for example, your own sense of self-worth, positive regard comes from that. There might be a moment where I, in my life, want to more deliberately pick up my being black and ethnocentric because I see something that is, it could be discrimination or something of that nature that requires me to conjure that identity. Um. When I'm in a space where I want to actually establish an identification, calling people forward towards a greater identity that includes our differences, I might want to plug into a world-centric space.
1: Or the internet. Or,
0: <laughs>
1: for sure. just We're not Twitter. Of, <laughs> or
0: just to get outside of that bubble, right? Yeah. Internet's great for that sometimes. Sometimes, you're right. And so, and the cosmic centric self is is again this state of awareness, this equanimity, this boundlessness that we can tap into, and resource ourselves from Mm. as we again develop the flexibility of mind of shifting these perspectives.
1: Yeah, felt very much like a meta identity to hold, kind of to hold uh, the others. Yeah, yeah, very cool. I like yeah. it. well thank you for sharing your uh your dharma my friend
0: thank you for having me such a honor and hopefully this was a value and people will enjoy this
1: yeah i i, I know i know that they will um and i'm looking forward to having you in this in the buddhist geek sangha to do to a little bit more teaching so yeah, man, thank no, you for, no, for coming yeah. back
0: all right brother thanks so all much.
1: right take care Ciao. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.